Once we dwelt deep in wooded places, hunting our food, keeping our fires, listening to the wild old songs of the night creatures. We slept on the ground, saw the moon hang itself up in the snag trees, watched a tide of stars wash in splendor over all of it. Woods colts, the old people called us. In passing, we found ourselves forever changed. Our hearts altered in some ineffable way, like feral children stolen back from the wild, unable ever to be the way we were before. everybody. Welcome to Happy Healthy You, the podcast. I'm Connie Bowman, and that's from Paired to the Bone, Core Hollow Days by Anne Lafferty. And Anne Lafferty is with me today. Hi, Anne. Thank Hi, you Connie. so much. Thank you for coming on the podcast to talk about this amazing adventure that you had in your book. It was such a fun read, and it's really a, um, it's, it's a nonfiction book. It's a true story that reads like a novel. It's so beautifully written. Thank you. And this is your very first book. Well, it is. It's my first published book, yes. Congratulations. Okay, so this is an amazing story. I think so many of us dream about what you did. You took your family into the wilds of Wisconsin to live a simpler life. Now, give us the whole backstory. Tell us about yourself, first of all, and how you came to bring your family to Core Hollow to uh, live this new wild and crazy life Uh, yeah that's one of the things that people ask me all the time like why in the world would you ever want to do that (laughs) well um you know and i did take my family along as an added bonus yeah (laughs) yeah, my my husband and i were adventurers and in the 1980s and 90s when a lot of you baby boomers were embarking on wall-to-wall carpeting and two-car garages and suburban swing sets we'd already made a different decision we were cutting wood and skinning deer because, after all, you've only got one life to live. <laughs> you wanted to do it all. Yeah, we did. You know, we can. We actually we lived in the middle of a big city at the time when we when we came up with our ideas. My husband had a construction business, and I was a teacher of adult education. And I was living in the asphalt jungle to access my job, really. But I often dreamed of another form of jungle, and this would be the Wisconsin wilds. And I chose uh, Wisconsin because, of course, it was it was a, a state right next door, and it, and it looked like it had a lot of woods and wild places. <laughs> um, actually, we were considerable risk takers, and once we had decided we needed free-range land, first thing we did was sell our city house. We owned a house in the city. Well, we didn't have any equity in it, so of course we ended up with no money. So then we didn't have a home anymore. So what we decided to do was um, we bought a tent, and we lived in that. Now... Um, at that time, I would have called us using available resources, but I think today you would probably call us vagrants. <laughs> now, let me just ask you this. This whole decision process, was this, did this happen over time, or was it sort of a... I mean, what led you to make this decision to move into the wilds and lead this whole new life? 
Well, I was always interested in the back to the land movement. And I used to study people like Helen and Scott Nearing. You've probably heard of them. And, and they, um, they were socialists. And they, um, I think uh, Scott Nearing was removed from his position in a university because it was the time of the McCarthyism and, and so forth. And so I was much impressed um, with their back to the land activities and how they built their own place and the thought of just getting away and, and, having, and, and getting into the woods. Um, my husband and I were both adventurers, as I said before. We also had a, an awful hard time getting along, but, but when we were involved in a project, we were just really gung-ho. And so, um, so you had that in common. We had that in common, right. We were both people that were risk takers and, and we weren't uh, about to accept the status quo. No way. Yeah. And as we come to find out, that might be the only thing you had in common. <laughs> yes. As you get into Parrot, you'll realize that is the only thing we had in common, but it worked for quite a while. But you also had three children at this time? Yes, we did. Okay. And what were their ages? Well, uh, Jesse was seven, I think, at the time, and Luke was two, and Naomi was one. So I had those two little stair steps, yes. Wow. Wow. Okay, so let's get back to the story. So you are making this decision to go and start this whole new adventure. How did you find the land that you came to love so much? We found it. We were looking for property, and actually at the time we owned some property way up north, but we didn't really know how we were going to make a living there. And, you know, that, that even for us, who were really crazy, um, we really knew we needed to make a living. And so a, a friend of ours had some property that he wanted a land partner. In other words, someone to work and build with him. He was a single person. So we decided, oh, yeah, this is our chance. And so we managed to scrape up the money we lived in a tent in various other places at the time. With and a one-year-old? Yes, and, and I did learn why Indian women developed the cradle board. I mean, it's just really like confine them until, <laughs> you know, strap them in there till they're about four years old and they'll be safe because, yes, it was a busy time. Crazy, crazy, I know. It, it's, you know, you think about doing this and it, this, there's this whole fantasy about uh, the simplification, but really... It's, oh, it's not that simple. <laughs> that no, it, it boils down as you get into paired. You see, it's tremendous amount of work. But you know, at the time, you don't see that you're young, and you think, "Oh, yes, this right. uh, this occupies me for the day, like washing clothes." So basically, you guys were a little bored with city life. You're a little bored with the whole uh, societal structure that you were living under, and you decided you were going to break away and and do something really cool. So. You arrive at Core Hollow, and tell us, practically speaking, what was like the first thing you did to set up household? Okay, I'm going to read you a little blurb from, okay. from this because I, I, think it. It, I think it covers just about everything um, that, to begin with. And this discusses our first, um, our first experience at Core Hollow. This property had nothing on it when we drove up in a rusted Ford pickup truck one evening. No road, just a sighing eternity of grass. And no house, just the waiting woods, echoing the moony cry of owls, shadowing the secret shine of wolf gaze. Our vehicle was at maximum load with beat-up furniture, clothes, and kids. Three kids rode in the truck bed holding a cardboard box with a big yellow cat in it, dangling their feet over the missing tailgate. A black dog the size of the hound of the Baskerville set on a dresser drawer, eyeballing two squawking turkeys in a barrel. All our assets were merged into one parcel, this... The moon rolled its blind white eye over us. We had no other place to live. Our first concern was shelter, of course. 
Of course, but you spent that first night in the back of your pickup. Oh, several nights actually. Oh my gosh. Okay. So what was the 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 first thing you did? You you found this trailer, I know, and you set up householding. That's not my first concern. I I found a quote there was a quote in your book when you poop, use the scoop. So, I want to know <laughs> I want to know about all these practical things. <laughs> Well, actually, practically, um, we needed, I mean, let's face it, we lived in the wild, so pooping wasn't a big deal. <laughs> we won't get into that. But anyway, um, what, what we needed to do was we needed the shelter. We needed heat because we lived um, in a cold climate in the winter. We needed water and food. Eventually, this is kind of an evolving story. We bought this trailer, and it was considered gutted, but really it just didn't have certain things that we didn't need anyway, like it didn't have a furnace. It did not have a toilet, but, you know, it did have a toilet, but it wouldn't do us any earthly good because <laughs> right. because it wasn't hooked up. But eventually, um, to get water to begin with, we, we um, went to the well on a, a previous property that the person allowed us to get water. But then um, what we did for for um, bathing and washing clothes is my husband, who was a construction worker, guttered the entire trailer, which was pretty long. I mean, oh, 70 feet, whatever they are. And we, we placed these stainless steel barrels at intervals along the sides. And as soon as it rained, wow, it filled up with water. Now, it wasn't piped in. You had to take a bucket and go and get it, but it was water you could bathe and wash clothing and um, as far as food we eventually of course came up with a garden that was an adventure in itself and for heat we had two stoves we had a really super boomer of a wood stove that was new it was kind of like a fireplace a model and you close the doors you put big logs in that and then we had an ancient cook stove that we bought at this antique place an old man who looked like a troglodyte came walking in there when my husband and I were puttering around looking at antiques and and he was hauling this crate with this huge iron cook stove on it and so we bought that and moving that was a trip but that was our our method of cooking. And then you went and dug up an old windmill. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the windmill. Well, well, we had big plans, you know, we didn't, we, we, we discovered after we drilled a well that it was so deep that there's no way anyone could, could pump it up out of the ground. I mean, you see these pictures of these children, you know, pumping a little handle and gushing cold water comes out and they fill a bucket and walk away. Well, when your well is 212 feet deep, sorry, it's going to take more than that to pump up enough water to use so we came up with it the windmill idea but the problem was you know we were great mother earth news people and so in in the in the ads it showed these um windmills but they were like for two thousand dollars which is quite reasonable but for us it might as well have been fifty thousand so eventually my husband in poking around the neighborhood and, and doing construction work saw a sign that said windmill for free take and, and this Amish guy had it so we ended up going out there and uh, the story is how we act how disappointed we were all of our big hopes were dashed when we saw it oh so so the windmill never worked oh the windmill yeah. did work oh, okay. what happened was um, the man took us around to see it and we had all these big plans saying, you know, we're gonna have flowing water. We might even put in a swimming pool. Wow, we can cool <laughs> we can cool you know, we're gonna be pumping up icy water effortlessly and we're gonna and, and we can cool food and everything. 
So um, we walked around the corner of this decaying barn, and um, the Amish man said, oh, it's over here. And I'm thinking, um, where? And then I noticed this, this mound on the ground. It was like the windmill was covered with strata-like layers, you know, like almost Precambrian from, um, from like years of manure. And so there it was, just, just the faint outline of a windmill. Eventually, though, we did dig it up, take it apart, take it home, and make it work. Your husband was a resourceful guy. Very. I mean, he was. There was nobody that could match him with that stuff. So you mentioned, even though your relationship with him was sort of tenuous, you you uh, you depended on each other. I mean, you talk about how your family really depended on each other. And what was that like? Can you talk about that a little bit as as you really simplify your life and depend on, you know, you live learn to live with the cycles of nature and everything? That's tough stuff. As a family, you really had to come together and, and ha- establish roles and establish sort of a routine. We did. We had, we had specific roles. And I'm going to say one of the reasons that I learned from men's and women's roles in that sort of a life is um, as a woman, some of that stuff is just too tough. So, of course, the man, and plus Dan had skills of building and so forth, which mm-hmm. I lacked. As the boys grew up, they became really efficient. The boys just grew right into that sort of a lifestyle. They could do anything. They could fix a vehicle. They could build anything. By the time they were 10 and 11, 12 years old, Naomi, that my daughter, could do just about anything too because she, being the youngest and a girl, followed after the boys. Mm-hmm. So she could actually, um, and this is a little tribute to her, but I say it was a tribute to our lifestyle. My daughter is um, a student right now. She's studying to be a psychologist. She's a mentor of girls. And um, she had a lady friend who was elderly and really needed the house roofed. Uh, one part of it was done, and then her husband became ill, and he couldn't finish. So she just got up there and hammered it up and, and finished the side of the house. Mm. Well, I think it's so amazing. Like You write so beautifully about your days and... They seem like they were so hard. You had so much work to do and your children. But you write with so much affection. Like, you know, even taking care of your animals seemed to be like your best friends, you know. Talk about some of your animal friends. <laughs> they were. In, in fact, we raised cattle and um, I raised, I had two cows and I would buy little steers, you know, when they were like 10 days old or something. And then I would melt the cows and feed the steers with these big baby Huey kind of bottles. Um from the cows but cattle if you if you know anything about cows they really have got a strong personality period one of the cows was just this really easygoing little um cow they were both brown swiss and the other one was just this masterful dominatrix that wanted to rule everything and in my constant conflicts with her and believe it or not i believe animals can speak to people right into your mind and she would often you know if i would look her in the eye i'd I'd get like a litany of text mental text about you know my former failings and what it was probably going to fail at today especially if she wasn't first (laughs) I know. I love the way you write about that, that telepathy between you yes. and, and the animals. And your dog, your beloved dog, was it Dodie? Oh, Dodie? Dodie dog. Dodie dog was um, a huge dog. I think Dodie probably weighed 140 pounds or more when he um, reached full size. Dodie was just really dependent on. He was a really sharp dude. He, he kind of had a box head with the little round eyes. 
but um, he was a Newfoundland mix, and, and they're very protective, and also they're, they're really intelligent. Mm. And he was a kind of dog that you were busy all the time, so he would just appear carrying his dog dish, and you'd say, oh, yeah, it's time for you to eat something. And we usually feed him kibble, and then we'd scrape whatever we had on our plates into his dish along with his kibble. So one day he came to me, and he was obviously hungry, and I said, well, go get your dish, which I would always say. Well, he looked and looked and couldn't find it because I had forgotten that I'd left it in the house. So I kept saying, go get your dish. I was busy and annoyed. And suddenly he came around the corner carrying a five-gallon bucket that I used to feed the cow. And I thought, you know, that's pretty darn smart. He knew it was a con- he needed a container. <laughs> Animals are so smart. Now, while you guys were living in Corhalo, you were also... Um interacting with the outside world right you had oh, your yes. kids had friends they had on a, friends a, they went to school part of the time and, right and your husband worked and mm-hmm. um but one thing happened that I thought was really profound and it seemed to be sort of a turning point in my mind when Jesse your son Jesse was diagnosed with the brain tumor yes he was diagnosed with the brain tumor uh, actually we, most people don't know if they have a brain tumor of course he um had an accident um, at a place where he was employed. He was a police officer, but he also worked part-time at this place, and it had paid his way through um, police academy. And he, um, a, ba- a bag full of animal protein, which just means it was a feed bag, mm-hmm. which was probably 50 pounds. They were in paper, and it slid off a shelf and fell on him. So he was, he had a spinal injury, and his spine a spinal cord um, had a swelling, and what happens with that is then you're paralyzed. Sometimes it happens. It's happened to some professional football players. Sometimes it goes away. Sometimes you're paralyzed for life. He was completely paralyzed for a certain amount of time from the waist mm. down, and he was in the hospital. And then when they did his MRIs, they discovered that he had a brain tumor as well. He did recover from the spinal injury, which is something we can bless God for. Mm. And and he went in and he had surgery, and your husband didn't want to have any part of it. No, he was very much against it. And I think, um, to be fair to him, I think he conceived of more than I did. As a mother, I'm thinking, oh, I, I want to help my son. I want I want him to be cured now. And if it's surgery, then, then that's what it's going to take. Right. But in my husband's mind, he's a little more farsighted. He's thinking, well, people live a lifetime with a brain tumor. Is it going to grow or not? We don't know that. But the chances of him being damaged from the surgery itself are great. In fact, this is true. He is handicapped from his surgery today. So you both had your own and and both valid points. I mean, you both yeah. had your... Yeah, we did. Um, but he didn't go to the hospital. And I, I, that, that affected me. I'm like, oh, gosh, I can't yes, it, even imagine. So. It was very strange. In fact, this was his way of coping. But it, it was very hard on me because I'm sitting there by myself with a child who has just had um, brain surgery. And mm-hmm. it's something kind of unimaginable if you haven't participated in that. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. So at that point, how long had you been in Core Hollow? Oh, by the time Jesse's surgery came around, Jesse was 19 at the time. So we'd probably been there 10, probably 10 years. Okay. And so how much longer were you to stay after, after that incident, would you say? Um, after that incident, I remained in Core Hollow until Naomi was 18. So that would have been probably another seven years. Um, it's, but eventually... 
we really love Corhala, but eventually we had to leave. Yeah, yeah. Talk about before we get to that. Let's talk about some of the fun things you did. I mean, you write you write with so much joy about the daily what to, to me. Oh yes, the drudgeries. But I mean, you write with such joy, and and you're, it's just such a beautiful um, tribute to where you were living. But um, talk about some of the fun things you did. I know you guys are musicians. We and- were musicians. Yes, um, my husband's family are gifted musicians, and he was a guitar player. And um, when Luke was nine, he received a banjo. And when Naomi was uh, seven, she received this little 12 bass accordion. Dan taught them how to play. um, And the way that he taught was something like a Suzuki method. In other words, he taught Luke specific chords. So when Luke was eight or nine, I can't remember exactly how old he was, like say say he could play G, C, and D. Okay, then he could play along with certain songs once he learned um, the, how the chord would change. So I'd play a melody on my fiddle, and Luke would sit there playing, and, and um, Dan would shout, G, change, D, change. Now, you can play a C, lot of songs change. with those three chords. Right, so, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. especially a lot of country songs. We played yes. a lot of old-fashioned country songs. Did you ever play Little Brown Jug? That's my dad's favorite song. Oh, absolutely. Oh, heavens, <laughs> That's yes. That's G, C, and D7. Oh, yes, and You Are My Sunshine? Who doesn't play oh, that? right, right. So... What were some of the toughest times that you can remember? I mean, obviously, this was a fun, joyful experience to some extent, but what were the really the tough times? Let's talk about the reality of living in this self-sustaining sort of world that you created with your family. Well, the toughest times, I think, were at, during the 90s, we had some really cracking cold winters, and, and it would get to be like 40 below up there. Well, at that time, we were just living in a trailer house, and there's just no way even a big wood stove can really keep up with that. So we were just basically, you're moving all the time. Um, we were throwing in wood continually. At the same time, um, we needed to care for cattle. So someone, I mean, the car probably wouldn't start. It was so cold that the oil gelled in the cars, really. And someone would have to go to the barn and care for animals. Now, sometimes my husband would be working out of town on an inside job, and that would be up to the kids and I. So it was just really rough. You'd get so cold that you'd just shiver and shiver and shiver because your body's reflexing to stay warm. And then when you came home, you couldn't warm up. And when you did warm up, you just want to eat and eat, eat. Yeah. But the things you guys ate, you mean, you saved up your food for the winter months. And yes, you canned we did. And talk about some of the things that you prepared in the summer with the, the food that you grew. and, and how Oh, we, we did everything. We had actually a very, very good diet. We had plenty of food all the time. We had a huge garden. And at first, that garden was on hard pan. So hard pan just means your carrots are going to turn out like pencils because they can't actually penetrate the soil. Mm-hmm. But 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 we we dissed it up, we dug it up, and we put all kinds of, even before I had cattle, I was always going around to the neighbors and asking permission to get manure. I mean, I had, you know, reeking compost piles about around every corner. But gradually, our food, I mean, the growth of, there is something to organic gardening. Our food like say our cauliflower or our broccoli our broccoli was like were like tree stumps they were huge and they just were so prolific well the way that we could keep food was was not the way the most helpful way we canned and we canned up everything and the way i canned was very simple and very effective on the wood stove i had i put on my seven quart canner 
and on top of the canner there's this little petcock that lets the steam out but there's a round well the, the actual petcock is this round circular um, weight that sits on it and, it, and it and you can set it for like 10 5 and 15 pounds pressure well for certain vegetables it'd be different fruits and vegetables would be like five pounds and uh well, fruits would be five pounds and like vegetables would be like 10. So what I would do is I would set them up and get them going on the stove and they keep, once that head of steam is built up, that pressure, um, that gauge would go and it would just keep it up. And you would know, even if you walked outside, left the stove, did whatever, you hear that and by the time 90 minutes was up, because that's what it took, probably took every bit of nutrition out of them, uh, <laughs> of the vegetables, they were done. Well, I would have shelves and shelves of that stuff. We also did um, meat. We, um, the boys would, would shoot a couple deer every fall. We had, we raised turkeys and um, we would butcher them. Um, a lot of times we would just get meat from other people. Yeah, you learn to be kind of heartless in the barnyard because, you know, you have to survive and too many animals are, you can't care for them. Right, right. Wow. This is just so inconceivable to me. What did other people, when your children would go out, did they did they come home and say, you know, so-and-so, what was the term you said the neighbors called oh, you? Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, the, uh, the woods cults. But actually, um, my kids had a lot of friends that there were a bunch of us that lived up in the hills there that were at that time kind of back to the landers. So a lot of people um, lived similarly to the way we did. The kids also had, uh, had they had farming friends, and they also had Amish and Mennonite kid friends. Okay, so there was that, a support community oh, yeah, somewhat. Yeah. They were quite a bit the same, at, right. uh, to tell the truth. And, and they all were kind of outdoor kids. I mean, in spite of the fact that I like to write books, I can't think of one of my kids that likes to read books, actually. They'd rather do they'd rather do than read. Yeah, well, that that's cool, too. So what advice would you have for somebody who might be fantasizing about going into this kind of a lifestyle? I think there's all these TV programs now about it, and it's, oh, what would you yeah. say to someone who might be, like, your top five <laughs> pieces of advice for somebody just in... I think my top one would be this. Back when we did this, people hadn't developed systems. Really, if you want to be off the grid, then you got to have to um, provide yourself with something similar. There are so many alternative um, ways of producing electricity now that are worth looking into. I'm not saying they're as good as being on the grid because actually they aren't. There's ways of um, cooling food. If you study some of these sites that show how to do it you can and i just think it would be so much easier than like carrying water in buckets and all the things that we did we just we just didn't have um the access to information that they have now and i would say if you want that kind of a lifestyle then check out the information and go for it yeah there's so much so much out there on the web that you probably oh, didn't sure. have back then oh, we didn't that have we anything had. Yeah. yeah well I thought you know the nearings building their homes stone by stone was terrific yeah but back then you know I was 30 years old and had a, had the muscle to do it yeah yeah well I think it's pretty impressive that's that's pretty cool and you know you you mentioned that you taught um, adult education but you've also been a writer for many many years writing articles for magazines and stuff but this is, is your first novel yes it is and um how after writing, writing paired to the bone, what what is your takeaway from this experience? I mean, 
it, obviously Core Hollow was was held a dear place in your heart and in the heart of your family. But what is your takeaway after having written about it and and having a little bit of time to really reflect back? Um, writing it brought me back exactly where we were then, and it's and it kind of solidified in my mind the thoughts I wanted to have on this place. I mean, everything is sort of mythical. Once you've left a certain position, it's now a myth. But I think I learned so much from it. I became, it was the most intense part of my life, actually, as far as intensity goes. Now, intensity just means degree. It doesn't mean it was the best time because it was some of the worst time. But the intensity of it was so high I actually became a different person. My brain, you know, there's a transmutation of your mind that occurs in places like that, and you can't change back. Like, I've done a little bit of studying on feral children. Well, they're an extreme, and, and some of these children might be have deficits of some kind, but we were like feral children. Mm-hmm. My daughter and I often talk on the phone about this and that, and, and in, in studying, you know, we, we, we reflect on, she's a psychologist, and we reflect on ourselves and how different we are to this day. Mm. I mean, it's extraordinary. You can't be the same having come from that. And you have a sequel to this book. Yes, I do. You want to talk about that a little bit? Don't give too much away, but Paired to the Bone is your first novel available on Amazon and at your website, annlafferty.com, yes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but talk about your sequel. My sequel is kind of a, a, an, an interesting thing. I ended up leaving behind Core Hollow. And I think the best way that I can describe that is reading uh, a little bit from some of the beginning chapters on how I left Core Hollow. Oh, yeah, because at the end of the book, I was just left wanting more. I wanted to know what happened to your marriage. I wanted to know what, yeah, so go. I'm excited. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> One cracking cold night, I stuffed my clothes into my old Honda, grabbed my violin and laid it on top of the pile. Then I hid the guns, slid under my shirt and shoved them under the bed. Not a very clever hiding place, but all things considered, I hadn't much time to think about it. Of course, he knew it right away and he said, okay, so where are the guns? And then he said, I love you. Of course, he was right, but never mind that. I'm seeing life backwards right now, and if you could see life backwards, like through the rearview window of your car, then you probably wouldn't be so inclined to mess it up. So I I just edged to the door, stumbled down the icy steps and ran to my car. It turned over twice and I floored it, fishtailing up the drive, creaking over packed snow, never slowing down, and drove through the red garden gates at Corhalla one more time, one last time. The night had already taken a tumble, a slick freefall to freezing depths, bitter bare trees moaning with the cold, hard sparkle stars flung frigid and stiff spirals. I jumped out and closed the gates, the sticky cold metal grabbing my fingers through my thin gloves. Whoa. Oh, I can't wait to read this next book. (laughs) (gasps) Anne Lafferty. Yes. Thank you so much. Paired to the bone, everybody. Read it and watch for the next book. When will it be out? Um, I'm thinking next fall. Okay. I can't wait. Oh, gosh. Thank you so much, Anne. This has been so fascinating. Hawkins Creek is the next book, so I'm so looking forward to that book. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Connie.